Hey, Urban Spinsters, before you get into this next episode of McLaren Hall, The Sin of Being a Single Mother in Poverty, make sure that you're subscribing to the podcast wherever you're choosing to listen or watch on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe there, like, comment, and share. And that's really important for content creators because it helps to build our channels as well as give us feedback regarding what you like and allows us to create more content around what you're responding to. So please do me a favor and subscribe. Hey, Urban Spinsters, this is Sadia Sanders of urbanspinster.com, where we are creating our own agenda, dispelling societal myths and redefining the word spinster. And today on the podcast is a guest, Mr. Gilbert Bale, and I was, I won't say introduced to virtually, but I was made known of Gilbert through Julie Reynolds Martinez, who is the creator of the Gray Area Podcast. So shout out to Julie. And Julie and Gilbert are producing a nine-part series on his life called Afterlife. And I wanted to interview Gilbert myself because he spent some time at McLaren Hall. And if you've been following me, I have been... um, created my own series around McLaren Hall or what some may call McLaren Children's Center, depending on what decade you're speaking about. And um, Gilbert received a 24 year to life prison sentence for attempting to avenge um, a friend's shooting. And although no one was, was shot, no one died, he still received this 24 year to life sentence and he is home now. So, mm-hmm. Gilbert is here, so we're going to talk to Gilbert. Thank you again for uh, agreeing to to be interviewed, Gilbert. How you doing today? Oh man, I'm doing. I'm blessed. I'm I'm lucky. You know, I'm one of the very few that are able to, you know, have have that opportunity to to tell the story because not everybody makes it out of prison. Not everybody makes it out of that uh, past lifestyle that I came from. And especially not a lot of people made it out of McLaren Hall, you know, to be able to even sit here and talk about some of the um, experiences that took place there. Now, when did you come home from prison? I came home on uh, November 28th on Thanksgiving Day of 2019. Okay. So as of five days ago, I think, five or six days ago, I've been home for three years now. So you came right before the <clears throat> pandemic. Yes, I came <laughs> home like months before, of like about maybe three or four months. And, uh, you know, I walked, I walked out of prison after 21 years incarcerated. I walked out in like within a few months, just a little bit that I was starting to get used to. It changed drastically. And, um, you know, I'm still making adjustments. It's, it's, all, it's all about adjustments. Yeah, for sure. And, but can you imagine if you were still in prison during the pandemic? I I I try not to ever imagine I'm ever there for it. <laughs> yeah, I totally. I mean, get it. Yeah, you know my co-defendant. He uh, unfortunately he's still there. Um, he walked me to the gate when I walked home, and because because of his um, he he has some different um, past uh, uh, felony convictions. Mm-hmm. His time was doubled, so he ended up with fifty five to life. And actually, there, there, there's a, there's a, I was actually sentenced to 20 years, 
plus a life sentence, mm. which, which technically kind of rounds out to like 27 to life. So how does that work <clears throat> when we hear a number and then to life? Like, how do they determine how much or how little time you're actually going to serve? So the, the, the law defined, the penal code defines as far as the sentencing, how the sentence is going to be applied. There's different types of life sentences. There's, there's what they call life with the possibility. That's what I got. And it's calculated at seven years. You're eligible to go for your first parole consideration hearing. Okay. Um, that's, a, you, that's life with the possibility. The next one is 15 to life. So after 15 years, you're eligible for your hearing. Then we have 25 to life. You're eligible for the hearing after 25, and then you have um, you have a few other ones that are like 27 alive. Usually, that's because there was another crime added to the life sentence. Mine, I had a 20 year enhancement for gang and, and gun enhancement. So the enhancement sentence you have to do first when you get to prison, and when I went to prison, it was at 85 percent. So. Once I complete 85% of the 20 years, which is considered a determinate sentencing law, a, a DSL, once that sentence is complete, the Department of Corrections uh, uh, will send you a letter through the mail saying you have completed this sentence. You now will start your life sentence. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's horrible. So I started the life sentence after 85% of the 20 years. And <clears throat> excuse me, me personally, because of AB 261 passed in January 1st of 2018, it made me eligible because of my age during incarceration. It, it, it made me eligible after 15 years of incarceration, no matter how the sentence was calculated. So because I had been there 21 years, the state had two years to take me to a board hearing and the board commissioners had to consider my age during the commission of the crime. And as that gets calculated and depending on your behavior is how they determine if they find you suitable. If you're found suitable, such as I was, it goes to the governor's office. The governor has 120 days to either sign the parole, um, reject it, or send it to what they call an in-bank. An in-bank is it goes to all the commissioners and they get a majority vote in your favor or a majority vote not in your favor. Now, how old were you when you were sentenced? <clears throat> I was 25 years old. Okay. 16, but 25. 16 in the mind, huh? <laughs> I was 16 in the mind and 16 in the, you know, developmental wise. Mm -hmm. I was, I was 16. I was, I, you know, that's my opinion, but I was, I was a lot more immature than a, than a 25 year old was. So at what age? Did you become gang affiliated or active in the gang before the all age, of that? At the age of 13, which the gang enhancement law did not exist. And at the age of 13, I became um, an active gang member. And after I joined a gang, it, you know, it was incarceration after incarceration. I was going in, in and out of the three different juvenile halls in LA County. Um, a few of the camps and eventually California Youth Authority, which is a state state facility for um, underage youth. I went to the Youth Authority for three and a half years, came home and then went back 
with a life sentence. Yeah, so I had, a, I had some history behind it. Yeah, because I heard you say on the Gray Area podcast that you didn't think you were going to get charged for this shooting. And yeah. given all this history, how is it that you thought you weren't getting charged? And you're not white. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So in the past, when I would get arrested for, when I committed a crime, you know, I want, I, I'll take responsibility for my part. When I would commit a crime, the way the legal system is, is especially in LA County, there's too, there's too many people. It overwhelms the court, the court mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. So the district attorney almost off the back is going to come in and offer you a deal. Plead guilty to this charge, take this time and you'll go home a lot sooner. Mm. So most of the time when the DA came in, I took I took the deal because it was either a lesser charge or is the lowest amount of time the judge can sentence me to. So I always took the deal. I never had been to a trial. And all the times I had ever been arrested, I'd never been to a full-blown trial. This time, I said, I didn't shoot nobody. There's no 911 call. There's no identified victim. I, um, they're stacking, you know, the crime. They're making it really big in the beginning, like with a lot of charges. They gave me five charges three days after. Well, actually, I think it was the next day after I got arrested. They changed all my charges. The gang unit did. Mm. I got arrested for discharging a firearm and a felony invading, which I probably would have been sentenced to maybe two to three years. Half time, I would have did maybe a year, year and a half and went home. So when I got arrested, I was like, you know, that sounds right. When I get to court, uh, you know, a few days later, I get, I, they take me down to downtown and I'm like, I'm supposed to be in the municipal court in, in East Los Angeles, you know, behind the, the sheriff's station. But when, uh, when they took me to the, to the courthouse, I was there for a few hours. The sheriffs came in and said I was in the wrong courthouse. So they drove me in a police car downtown. Uh, it took me to criminal courts building CCB I think they changed the name of it now, but they, they took me downtown, appointed me a special prosecutor, hardcore DAs against gangs, I believe is the acronym. And I was given the, the special prosecutor and I was told by a public, uh, I want to say public pretender, <laughs> <laughs> but the public defender, he came in and told me that they changed the charges and that the gang unit would be the um, taking the lead role on the charges. So I'm, I'm it seems like you're just getting kind of shuffled from here to here to here. You don't really have any say in who's representing you. At the time, no. At the time, no. I was, uh, I, I still believe that they were just trying to stack up the charges to offer me the deal. I said, they're probably giving me all these charges to give me like a higher sentence. Not, well, not a life sentence, but they're, I said, okay, there's five charges. It was attempted murder, the gang and gun allegation, assault with a deadly weapon, firing out a moving vehicle, and a felony evading. So I said, okay, they're making the charges, like extreme charges that carry life sentence. The DA's probably not going to want to take me to trial with, with no victim, no witness. So I said, he's probably going to offer me like 10 years, you know, 10 years with 80, 85%. And I was willing to take it. You know, inside, I knew I was guilty. I did go over there. You know, I did go over the there. The intent My, was there, even though it didn't. 
but I just, you know, my victim got away. The, the, the honest truth is my victim got away. You know, it took me a long time to get to this truth because I denied it. I denied it for like over 10 years. But in prison, when I started to work on myself and I started to change, one of the big changes I had to do was face that reality. It is the system, you know, and I have my own ideas and the fairness of the system, how it's applied, who it's applied to, mm-hmm. you know, geographical area, ethnicity, all of that stuff. There's obviously those factors, the historical factors, economical, all of these different factors come into play. And I had already understood that part, but I said there was no point on me continuing to um, evade the responsibility. Because once I take responsibility, then then now I can look back and say, all right, now let's work on you taking responsibility for your part. Because I didn't just show up to... Uh, I, society my opinion looks at crime at criminal crime punishment right but something happened way before that like what goes on that makes it okay for gilbert to get in a car with a weapon go look for somebody to murder what what something had to happen and that part never gets told right that never goes into the trial that never gets the jury never hears that now let, let let's go into the trial and let's go get all the history behind Gilbert. Let's go talk about when he was removed by CPS from the home. Let's talk about what was going home in the home. Let's talk about where you took him. You took him out of his home because there was drugs in my home with my mother. And then you put me in a place that was 10 times worse. You put me in McLaren Hall, right out of the backseat of a cop car, right to McLaren Hall. And then you have all this stuff going on around me and you're not telling me nothing. You're putting me in a cell, locking me up. I hear kids crying. You're throwing them on the floor, putting them in cuffs. Like, I, like you go from that, and then you, and then the rest of my life, I'm going to these courts. You know, for well, for the rest of my juvenile life, I'm going through all therapists, counselors. Like, who's touching you? Is anybody? You know, where do you sleep? I'm like, all these people asking me all these crazy questions. I'm eight years old. You think I want to be answering those questions? Like, don't you think? What effect do you think it had on me? You know, emotionally, development. You know, psychologically. You know, uh, socially, like all these factors came into play. From that point forward, when I was eight and I left McLaren Hall, I just got in trouble for almost the, the rest of my juvenile life, all the way into adulthood, to 20, age 25. You know, I was in and out, 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 like dropped out of school, you know, raised by my grandmother, Drugs in my home, um, alcohol in my home, violence in my community, violence in my own home. It's like, what do you think is going to happen to a guy like me? So you want to look at me like I'm a criminal, I'm an animal, lock him up, give him the rest of his life in prison. Like, really? That's the best answer you could come up with? There's got to be something better. Well, I mean, too, like you said, the, <clears throat> there's systemic racism in every system or every Mm -hmm. structure within our society because I'm reading a a book now um, and it it just goes all the way back to the 1800s as far as the child welfare system. Children in this country were not considered even Mm -hmm. though these children grow up and be to be adults okay so you know you have to take care of the children and their well-being mentally physically emotionally because they're going to grow up and be adults but yes. that's has never been the mindset when you're talking about child welfare. It was like, you know, they're better, uh, what is it, seen and not heard kind of thing. 
And if you were from a poor background, then it was even worse for you. Uh, and if you were not white, then it was even worse for you because kids were sent to labor camps and, you know, all this kind of stuff. If they were from poor backgrounds, or orphaned or, or, you know, whatever the situation is. And it really has not changed that much now where, yeah, you have child labor laws, but you're still kind of discarding children or not protecting them. And then expecting that by some miracle, they grow up and be, you know, productive when you've given them no type of resources structure or, or any of that. And a lot of times with uh, domestic violence, it is perpetuated generation after generation. So I was wondering, because you did mention the fact that from age eight, you were in and out of these institutions and, and the system, how much time do you think you spent in some type of state facility from when you were first removed from the home at eight all the way until your prison sentence? Probably just guesstimating right now, probably somewhere between 28, 28, 29 years. You know, throughout adding, you know, I did that one twenty-one year was a long one. Mm -hmm. I did I did three and a half years before that, a year before that, and then um, there was a lot of like, you know, nine months, twelve months, or ten months. Just there was a lot of months in between. And um, if I had to calculate them all up, it was it was it's a high number. There's yes. definitely more incarceration in my history than there is that I've been outside of a cell. Or you even know, not, just not even incarceration, but <clears throat> like with McLaren Hall, even though it probably felt like incarceration. Oh, you, that was locked up. <laughs> yeah, you weren't accused or convicted of anything at that particular point, but you have been in some type of system or in state custody, let's say that, in some type of state custody since eight all the way to, now when did you get out? You were 25 and you did 20 years, so you were 45? I was like when you 40, came home? I think 47 when I came home. Okay. 40, I was 47 years old. Um, yeah, so it's more time in than more time out. Mm -hmm. you know? And um, the disparities are definitely there. You know, I, 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 I worked inside a drug program for 13 years before I came home as a mentor. And... Um, you know, I sat in many circles, therapy, counseling, and I would hear different people, different ethnicities tell me what they were there for. Like, I remember meeting this this young kid. He was a white kid from, like, Ventura County, somewhere, I think Thousand Oaks, somewhere around there. And um, he was telling me that he was smoking weed with his friends. They started drinking. He gets in a fight with one of them. Hits him, he hits him with a skateboard over the head. The kid dies, and they send him to prison for uh, involuntary manslaughter with halftime, four years with halftime. And he's sitting in my group complaining about his sentence. Hmm. And, you know, I, it, it's not my, uh, not my role to, like, throw my, my personal spin on him, but I, I, I question him, like, you know, asked him about what happened and everything. And, you know, it, it showed me like, if I lived over there, 
if I was a different color, would I be treated different? Um, so it, there's definitely growing up in the system, you could see the disparity between the color, but everywhere I've been, there was always, you know, there was white kids wherever I went. There was white adults wherever I went. I have a lot of friends that are, that are, that were white. So it, it, it there's, is it the law applied the same? Definitely not. Um, but it, they're not immune to the system either. You know, they're, they're poor. There's a lot of poor white yeah. people doing yeah. live, doing yeah. census, you know, they're McLaren Hall, juvenile halls. And I, that was the one thing I noticed, you know, the ones that were in, incarcerated, they usually didn't come from the affluential places. The ones that did usually had a very small sentence for a bigger, big, big crime. Or they spent less time in <clears throat> uh, foster care or in a, because McLaren Hall was supposed to be like that temporary placement before you went to mm -hmm. foster care or reunited with your family if that was even a possibility but if there was someone that had money usually there was mental illness that mm -hmm. resulted in the children being removed or there was drug abuse or something of that nature but they had some type of resource to be able to get the child out of McLaren or into a better environment and not just whoever was available as far as a foster family um, so I just wonder for you when you were removed, cause I did hear you mention that you have siblings. Yes. Now, were you the only one that went to McLaren Hall versus your siblings? Yes. So I was the oldest of four siblings. And when they, I have a different father, my, my father abandoned me from birth, my sister, my two brothers, father, you know, they always had that side of their family. I had zero contact with my side of my father's side of my family. So when we were removed because they were same father, same mother, from this from what I was told later in life, they were kept together. They went to a foster home, like a temporary foster home, and then their father's mother was able to take them and uh, get custody, excuse me. Okay. My I went in the back of a cop car to McLaren Hall, and like, it, and of course, when I'm that age and when it's happening, I know nothing. I don't know where they're at. Uh, I was more worried about them than I was myself at the time. You know, I was like, man, where's my sister, and brothers? You know, I'm supposed to take care of them, and I just, you know, I was, I was worried. I was, I remember being worried. You know, they're, I don't remember too much but there are certain things that stuck with me for the rest of my life. And that was one of them. I couldn't, I didn't understand, you know, after like, why, why did they take me there? Like, why did I go there? And uh, I hated it there. I remember like, I remember crying. Like I, 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 I wouldn't cry in front of people when I was a little kid today. Mm -hmm. I cried with any movie, you know, but <laughs> Back then, I wouldn't cry, and I remember only when people were looking, you know. And I was in that in that in that room in that cell, you know, at night, and I remember crying. I, I can remember that, and I can remember hearing other kids crying, you know. I, I could hear the staff yelling at them and opening the door and threatening them, and I remember that. I remember like going outside to this big yard, and I remember they had bikes. But I don't remember very much about the place. Like it's something like blocked it out in my head. Mm. Well, when you say they opened up the cell, so it's the 
they put you in a room that kind of resembled a cell to you at that age? At, at that age, I didn't. I, it was a room. It was a locked room. Uh -huh. um, when I started going to juvenile hall, the first I, they used to scare me when I left McLaren Hall. When I did wrong and I got in trouble and I got punished, you know, my family, my grandma mostly, they would tell me, um, you're going to go to juvenile hall. You know, they're going to beat you up when you get there. You know, they, like that, that was the threat. So I wouldn't do wrong. And I remember when I went to juvenile hall the first time, my first time they locked me in the cell, I said, this reminds me of McLaren Hall. Mm. I was in East Lake, East Lake Central Juvenile Hall in LA. And it, it, I was on the, I was on unit CD, uh, what they call the girl side. And I remember what, and it's real old. It has the old furnaces in there. But I remember walking in saying, this looks like McLaren Hall. I remember this place like this. So it, in my mind, it connected to, so I think I referred to like as a cell because if somebody got to lock me in there and I can't get out when I want, that's a cell. And McLaren Hall was run by um, juvenile probation first. So it was run like a jail. Mm. And it wasn't until like mid-80s when uh, Department of Children and Family Services was created that LA County DCFS took over. But initially, it was run like a prison. And I never knew that. Like, I, I don't, you know, when, when I left McLaren Hall, we never talked about it in my family. Never talked about. It. I never told nobody. You know, I I left it. Whatever happened, it, I blocked it out. It wasn't until I started doing work on myself, many years in prison, being in you know a group, that I started getting asked about like, how did you grow up? Like, mm -hmm. what what was going on with you? Like, what 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 do you think led you to this? You know, and I like I never blamed. To this day, I never blame my mom. I never blame nobody, you know. I always take responsibility. Well, I don't say always did, but when I started changing, I, from that point, I take responsibility for my, like, I know if I did something wrong, I chose to do it. And I just, and I had to learn, like, there was influences. There was other yeah. things going on. There was some things I had no control over that I think created the perfect storm for me to to make bad decisions. Like, I, I get that part. Um, other people have their hands in, in, in and could have done better, didn't do better. The system could have did better. They didn't do better. You know, and, and, and for a long time, I used to think, man, the system's broken. It's broken. I, pre I preached it. The system's broken. Eventually, I got to a point I said, the system ain't broken. The system's doing exactly what it was designed to do. The thing is, it wasn't designed for us. Exactly. It was designed to serve the people that it created. And that's why it's that's why it doesn't work for us. We have the misconception, or I do, that it's broken. And once I understood that, it, it was like this clarity. And I was like, okay, now we could go, now I could go and talk about it. You know, once I take responsibility and I could, I could clearly see what uh, you know whose hand has it in there and, and follow the money trail and who's this benefiting because it, it, it's a losing game it, like everything i've seen the system has created i've seen like why don't they just do this it would be better and then when you go and try to do something about it there's so much resistance i work i work in the department of corrections now so i came home from prison and got hired to go back and work in there 
So I work as a certified drug and alcohol counselor in the prison right now. Okay. I teach three classes. And, you know, that was a big decision for me to make. Do I go back and work within a system that I I was I lived in for so long, you know, that I've seen is 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 not it's not doing what it can do. And uh that's the way I serve it up in the class. You know, that's the way I serve it up. Like you have to care more about yourself than the people saying that they care about you. And once you are able to do that, you can recognize the helpers in your life. You take what you gotta take and you make it work in your own life and you move forward because the end of the day, man, you you have to do all changes self change, and that has been uh, some gift that I've been able to bring that I learned the hard way. I had to learn to experience. And we aren't taught discernment, so no. what you're teaching is discernment because <laughs> I know in in my own household we were taught to if you cared about someone, you lent a hand. You, you know, uh, saw about them if they were sick, if they needed anything, if that was your, your friend, family, loved one, whatever, you kind of, you know, made yourself available for that mm -hmm. person. But I was not taught how to discern who was worthy of that and who wasn't. Yes. And so especially being a, a woman, a lot of girls are taught to be people pleasers, you know, be good, be kind you know, this and that, but they're not teaching us how to say no and be okay with saying no and don't worry about who's going to get mad or, mm -hmm. you know, who's going to talk about you because you didn't want to do what they wanted you to do. We weren't taught about manipulation, you know, or narcissistic personalities and, you know, all this stuff that we're hearing now and gaslighting and, you know, all these terms that are yeah. kind of normal now. We were not privy to any of that type of, um, I guess, mental health, emotional health kind of talk. Yes. It was just like, be good. You know, if someone asks you to do something, you just do it, you know? And uh, I was gonna ask you what attracted you to the gang lifestyle because growing up in uh, South Central LA, I came to LA like in the 80s. So I was born in Chicago, moved to Atlanta mm -hmm. and then here. And so my parents had separated and they got back together and my dad was here. So my mom and, uh, and I came here with him and I've been here ever since. But growing up in South Central, like mid eighties, that was height of the gang era, gang activity. Um, so I was exposed to a lot of that just from living in certain neighborhoods, going to school with certain gang members, taking the bus, you know, you're on the bus, either uh, public transportation or school bus so you're engaging with this culture and then the music was perpetuating that too yeah so outside looking in you're like oh this looks fun <laughs> you know you know oh i have a group of friends they we care about each other or they got my back blah 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 but you don't really know what it is mm -hmm. until you get involved with it so what attracted you initially to that lifestyle I got into the gang when I was 13. I, I didn't, I was scared to get in the gang at first because my mom used to always, you know, my mom always preached against it. You better not get in the gang. You better not. I better not find out or I'm going I'm to kick your ass, you know? So I, I just, I was, you know, I love my mom. My mom was, you know, she was, 
I, I always wanted to protect her. I always wanted to believe her, but I was, I was always around gang members as a kid, you know, growing up, I, I seen what they do. I seen everything. When uh, there was a lot of violence in my home, there was violence in my community, domestic violence, there was drugs. So I think I had gotten to the point where I had normalized hmm. so much of that lifestyle in my own life. But whenever I did anything like in school, if I, if I fought at school, you know, I would get in trouble when I got home from my grandma. Like everything my grandma was telling me, it was like I was getting punished for like doing what I had seen. So I'm like, I'm supposed to like, I'm supposed to be a good fighter. I'm supposed to be like, I'm supposed to be tough. I'm not supposed to cry in front of people. I'm not supposed to snitch. Like, like this, these things were like, and I today I could explain it. Then I would never be able to explain it. But looking back, it's like all these messages I got compared to what I was, I was uh, living in. They didn't match when when the other gang members, when I would be around them, they would embrace me like I would be rewarded for how much I was willing to do for the gang. If I would go fight like and I fought good, it was like, man, but if I went home and they found out I fought, I would get in trouble. Mm -hmm. I'm like, but. It, it, you know, and I'm watching them fight. I'm watching the drugs is out there. If I, if I could get drugs, if I use drugs, it's like I'm embraced. So there was a reward there. And the the camaraderie, the unity, the backup, the, the no, you know, the notoriety of it. Like, I've seen, like, these guys have respect. They're famous. Yeah, they're <laughs> Like, man, like, Nobody's talking about these other guys. Like my, because I had friends that were straight. They were they didn't mess around like that. And I started noticing, like when I started hanging out, I started hanging out before I got in, and I started noticing that my friends' parents would tell them, "I don't want you hanging around with Gilbert. Don't go to his house no more." And I, that happened like fast, like within a year. Mm. Like I couldn't go to their house. They weren't supposed to be at my house. We weren't supposed to be hanging out. But the other friends, man, you know, I'm out on this. I would stay out all night. I remember I would come home. I was into break dancing before I got into the gangs. So the break dancing, my grandma thought it was gang related. You know, she was older. She was born in 1937. So I'm in the 80s. I'm break dancing. But when I would dress like the little break dancer, I wore like the black and white, my hat sideways, whatever I did. My grandma would be like, turn your hat right. You ain't wearing that, you know? And I was like, man, I want, you know, this is what's going on at my age. Like, mm -hmm. this up was big when I was a kid. And I wanted to be part of it. And I was, I danced. I was pretty good at it. And then, you know, the police were breaking that up. That was like, that, that, and there was nothing going on illegal. But they just, they, they a started, group of guys, are, you know, in the huddle. Then it's like, oh, something's going on. Yeah, and they started like, they would pull up and break us up. Get out of here. We're going to arrest you. And they would take the little cardboard from us. They would make us turn off the radio. The schools banned everything. No radios in the school no more. No cardboard. We better not catch you out here dancing. And they banned it. Doesn't that sound crazy as hell? Yeah. I'm like, I'm like dude. You're I, dancing. Yeah. And, you know, I played sports and I, and I danced. And then once that was taken from me, it was like I started noticing 
like a few of my friends were going towards the gang. They were like, come on, man, like we're going to ditch. We're going to go over here, hang out and drink. And I'm like, damn, I'm going to drink. You know, my family, like they drink, they party. Like that's all they're like. I seen it like, man, I'm about to be a dog. I make my own decisions. You know, I'm not going to listen to my grandma no more. Shame my mom, you know, I don't got a dad. I don't got to listen to nobody. No man's going to tell me what to I grew up around all women. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ain't no man going to tell me what to do, you know? So, you know, my belief started shifting and, and at the acceptance. And I was like, this is more like home out here than it is. Like my home is my home. This matches it. But I get in trouble when I play it out at home. And I went, I went to the streets, man. One day I was drinking. The homies were giving me, you know, getting me drunk. And uh, they kept calling out, calling me out. You're scared. You're scared to get in. You're because they 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 court you in by three guys jumping. Mm-hmm. So they were like, we can go outside and you're gonna have to fight for your own. We're gonna see how tough you are. And one day I, you know, I had a, one enough drinks. We walked outside and I, you know, and I fought three guys, man. And when I when they did drop me, I got back up and I was embraced. And they told me, you know, you 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 get up, man. Don't ever don't ever let anybody get you down, you know. And from that point forward, you know, writing on the walls and hanging out and and stealing out of the stores and stealing bikes. It was just it just got worse, worse. Stealing cars, carjacking, and there's weapons involved now. You know, I went from drinking to smoking marijuana to you know, trying out coke in the 80s, you know, the crack cocaine bust blew up. They're selling crack in, in my neighborhoods. I, I'm out there buying, you know, double ups just to just to get a little bit of funds in my pocket to buy a dime of weed or something, you know, or buy like, you know, my Nike Cortez or my Chuck Taylors, you know, the Ben Davis. Like I, I had to change, you know, I was changing how I dress. So mm-hmm. I had to pay that like I, they were my, they were going to buy me those clothes. My oh, grandma, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you ain't going to be a gang member in, in this house. So I had to hide that stuff, you know, when I was 13. But once I start, once I went to Juno Hall, I went in there and I wasn't scared no more because the people I knew from the streets. They were in there. They were there. And I mm-hmm. was like, this is cool. Like, I know these guys. These are my homies, you know. And um, the fear was gone. And so was the fear of, you know, the, my fear was I didn't want to get caught from the police but my fear was more the way the police like because i got beat up they when i was when i was 16 they split my head open they knocked me out broke all the bones in my wrist the the alley sheriffs and then dropped me off at my home after they did it Hmm. without you know they took me to hospital stitched me up put a cast and then took me home and dropped me off so you know and they used to pick me up shake me down take me to my enemy's neighborhood and then honk the horn and yell my neighborhood and take off wow these are the east valley sheriffs right and um so i was like i'm more scared of what these guys are gonna do to me like just take me to jail man i'm mm-hmm. not tripping let's just lock me up man just don't beat me up or don't you know don't get me killed man if you take me over there like these guys are gonna kill me over there and um you know so don't that's the kind of life I'm a kid. I'm 13, I'm 14, I'm 15, 16, like. Very formative years, because that's something about that 14. I don't know what it is. Because yeah. that's when you start really trying to, you know, as the old people say, smell yourself at 14. <laughs> like you think you're grown and mm-hmm. you want to be an adult and, and try all this stuff. But what do you think made the streets voice louder than your grandma? I, I felt like I belong. I, 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 
I remember telling, I remember I used to tell people, I don't belong in school. Like school's not for me. I'll never go to college. I'll never graduate. Like, I don't want to go to school. I don't like people. I don't like counselors. I don't like teachers. I don't like, I don't like nobody with a tie. I don't want nothing to do with like that. To me, that was the system. And I was like, mm. I hate them. I don't want nothing to do with them. I don't care about principles and I, and I'm not scared of getting my ass whipped. So like, if like, you're going to have to bring it to me, you have to beat me up. I'm a little guy. I'm probably going to lose more than I win, but you're going to have to like, and I wasn't scared at home either. Like I had got to the point where like, I don't care if you hit me with a stick, a broom, a, a, whatever you hit me with, like, it's, it's not going to hurt me. You're not going to hurt me. I don't like, I don't care no more. I just don't care. And when I went to the street, I felt the street care. Mm-hmm. No, when I got locked up, like my homies, like my family's not here. Like it, it's a misconception. I know that. Like today, I know that. But when I was that age, I was like, if I'm on the street, my homies are there. If I get locked up, I don't care where you put me, any cell you put me, like any lot institution, my homies are gonna be there. If anything happens to me, they're the ones that are gonna be right here. Everybody else is telling me, don't call me. Mm. Don't call me. I ain't going to get in your shit. Don't call me. The police pick you up. And, and I surely ain't going to be there when they jump you or when they do. And, you know, and it's it, it's all, it's it's all, all those beliefs feed the system. They all do, you know. That kind of, that kind of thinking, I truly believe is by design. Yeah. It's yeah. by design. And the more I thought I was resisting, the more the system was living in my head. And it got so strong that I couldn't see it. It wasn't until many years, you know, these many, these great teachers that came into my life, these great mentors, these great leaders that came, you know, some of them weren't per- people. They were out of a book, you know, I locked up. I'm in the hole. I'm somewhere, you know, I'm somewhere by myself and I have nobody to talk to. You know, and that's where it came from. These these great leaders came into my life when I needed them. And they started to guide me and point those things out. You have to look at these things because Gilbert, nobody's going to come in with a cape and save you. Nobody's going to like, there's no magic wand. There ain't no magic pill. It's just you, man. You have to face this reality. And when I did, then my I then I realized how much I didn't know. I went back to school. I went back. I went to college. You know, I graduated high school in prison. I graduated college in prison. I went and got my AOD in prison. Like all my accomplishments were in a place designed to break me. What's the AOD? It's al- uh, alcohol and other drug counselor. I'm a certified okay. drug alcohol counselor through uh, through uh, Cadet. Through, okay. through, through. So I, you know, and now I found something that I was good at. I'm now in front of a class in wearing state blues, <laughs> you know, with other men that are like me that come from the places like me. And I'm in there telling them just like I'm telling you, bro, I've been in those. I've been in McLaren Hall. I've been in the juvenile hall. I didn't skip your age. I didn't skip the drug you're on. And I and 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 I was like, look, like you have to believe that you have to look at that until you do. You won't be just like me doing the same thing, expecting like something else to result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the definition it, of insanity. It, it's not going to happen. No, <laughs> ain't nobody ever come, you know, no counselor in prison ever came and knocked on my door to see how I was doing. Not once. They had a title. Nobody ever came. Um, 
I did meet people at part of the administrative people in the prison, you know, very, 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 very few that did position me, you know, put me in places, transfer me, you know, give me jobs that I was able to excel. I was able to grow there and I was able to, to give, give, you know, pay forward. And, um, you know, that has helped me tremendously. And I, and that's, that's what I do today, you know, and I, I, I really believe that, um, there's a lot of things by design that are, that are, you know, they're there, man. There, there, there's some ugly stuff out there. There's some stuff people do. Excuse me. There's some people, there's some stuff I see people do today. And I call them on it and they, they just, you know, and I tell them, look, man, I, I know, you know how I know, you know why I'm telling you? It's because I've been on the other side of that. I, there's some people that don't know my background and I go, I've been in trainings. I've been in meetings. I've had people in my own home and we're talking and they start putting down people like mm. me. Oh man, it's Dauphine. always a Dauphine. They did drugs. And I'm like, guess what, man? I did drugs. Oh, uh, you know, oh man. Oh, you're man. different. <laughs> you're oh, different. <laughs> you know what they told me? You're a unicorn. <laughs> You're different though. And I told him, nah, bro, what it is, is that the system that I talk about lives in your head and you can't see it. You reinforce it by pointing your finger at me. I'm like, you know that there's a story behind the story. Have you ever like, heard of uh, D.L. Hughley's book, The Most Dangerous Place for a Black Man is Inside a White Person's Head? No, I never heard of that. <laughs> I mean, and even when you're talking about just you gathering and dancing and that being seen as, oh, they're up to something. It's the same way in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. We as black people in, in black, black and brown people in, in corporate, if we're standing in the break room, you know, if it's like three of us or <laughs> we're near the water cooler and we see some white person come in, we're like, mm, you know, like, let's. Let's disperse because they're going to think we're trying to take over or, you mm -hmm. know, they're going to think we're trying to, to do something shady or whatever. So it's, it's still those racist thoughts mm -hmm. permeate every form of life. And, you know, to your point about things being by design, um, you know, me growing up in South Central, of course, I, I had friends, homies, whatever, went to jail, went to prison. And they were always, I guess they were bored. And they would always call my parents' house <laughs> and we reconnect some kind of way. I knew them from like high school, junior high, and they wind up in jail or in prison. And um, I'd gone to, I can't remember if it was Soledad or Calipatria, one of them. Mm. It was far as hell. That's all I remember. It was far. <laughs> and me and one of my girlfriends went to see one of my friends and we, I felt like, I don't know about her, but I felt like they were treating us like we were the prisoners. Yeah. And, you know, they put it so far and they had you jump through all these hoops. And I'm like early 20s. I had no criminal background or nothing. But of course, they screen you and make sure that you're uh, suitable to, to visit. But <clears throat> I mean, they put us in this like cage-like kind of thing when we first got there. So all the visitors go into this space. It's not even a room because it's outside. The yeah. But it's a cage. 
And then you go into this area and then you get, you know, they search you and the whole thing. And um, my friend that was with me, she had a, a bra that had a wire, I guess. Yeah. But so when they wanted her, it was going to, so then she had to go into this room. I was like, okay, this is too much. <laughs> this is too much. And then even though I had uh, the date of when I was visiting, they didn't go get my friend until I don't know how long they had us waiting. He was like doing something else. Then he had to go take a shower. I mean, we're just, the time is just running out, running out, running out. Uh, so by the time he actually gets to the visitor room, we didn't have that much time left. And I was like, see, they don't want you to visit. Discourage <laughs> you. Right. Yeah. They definitely <laughs> discourage you from coming because this sounds like this is too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of um, all my time I spent up in Northern California, so I was never in Southern California serving any of my time. And it seems like, like you, if you're from Northern California, you're gonna spend your time in Southern California. You know, it's like they put you in as far as place they can get. You know, and and what does that do? Like, this, everything by design in there is to separate you discourage you discourage you know communication contact you know everything in there it's like anything you have is so that it can be taken and that's what abusers do they isolate you Mm -hmm. from your friends and your family so you know the department of corrections is just another another level of abuse definitely that and, and it's 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 like we as taxpayers pay $71,000, if not more, to for a year to for somebody incarcerated in the Department of Corrections. Now that the taxpayers, you know, now we're starting to find out more about this stuff. And then, what, like 67 to 73% recidivate within three years with a new felony? Something's going on. That are behind CDCR is there's like that... Sh- just, there's an issue there. There should be a problem. People should be pissed off because they're paying that. Because everything in prison is done by us. We do the like le- le- If there's an electrician, it's one one free staff, and he has a, a, a you know incarcerated people working for him. We're doing all the work, and they're supervising the plumbing. We make all the clothes, the sheets, the blankets, the pillows. We sweep everything in that prison. We clean everything in that prison. I mean, you name it, we're the ones doing it. What are they paying for? What, what, where's this money going, right? It doesn't cost that much to house somebody. Now, what if we didn't work? What if we didn't go to work and said, hire your own plumbers? Because ain't no plumber going to come in here and work for minimum wage. Most of us work and don't get paid. When we do get paid, you're making eight cents an hour, maybe 17 cents an hour. You know, you get the better jobs, maybe up to about a dollar an hour. What is this? Where's this money where's going? Where's the money going? <laughs> Where is the money going, right? And that's and not it, the private prison. That's just the state prison. That's just the state. That's just the state, right? Now, as soon as somebody like me starts saying that, oh, here we go. <laughs> He commits a crime and then he's complaining about the situation. You're lucky you have clothes on right now. You're lucky you have all of this stuff right here. And I'm I'm lucky. Wow. That's that's the best answer you got, huh? Now who is who's the one saying that 
you know, you're lucky and you shouldn't be complaining. The, the correctional officers, the, the, it, it, most of the staff that work in there, I still hear it even out here. Like, you guys are fortunate in there. You get your education paid for. You could go to medical for free. You could go, you get all this stuff for free. Like, why are you complaining? You committed a crime. You hurt somebody. Like, but you can't even you work the first how many years when you first get in. It's not like, okay, I'm in prison. Let me immediately start working or going to school or whatever. Don't you have like a time frame by which you can't even do anything when you first get in there? It depends on the level um, the level you go into prison. So if you get like a big, a big sentence, like a life or like a large number, you're going to go to level four. Level four is the high security. Yeah, you go to high security, good luck if you get any job within about four to five years. Wow. You're going to be locked down in a cell most of the time. No job, no school. There's not much to do. Even the little bit of jobs there are there, they're scarce. And the people that have been working there have been working there for years. So they're not going home. They're not losing their job. Unless they go to the hole or they die, you, 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 you know, they're not going nowhere. Mm -hmm. so yeah and now you go through lower level level one level two you know they're going to put you out there on the yard picking up papers sweeping a broom somewhere working in the kitchen i mean and and they're like hey do this do this you know it, it's it, you're, you're they're busting your butt all day and there's no incentive i mean there's almost zero incentive it's so bad that the kitchen workers they can't take nothing out of the kitchen they throw away any leftovers. The food gets thrown in the trash. They cannot take nothing back. So they have to anticipate how many people, because you don't have to go to the chow hall to get your food. So they don't know if you got a population of 4,000, 6,000 people incarcerated, they have to anticipate that all those people are going to come to the chow that breakfast or dinner. Whoever doesn't come that day, whatever's left over, they throw it away. Well, the food is so bad in there also is that when there's like food product like chicken, any kind of meat product or like cheese, the guys that work in there, they're still it. They're taking it out. You know, they're taking all the meat out, they're banging it up. And then they find, you know, there's always there's a will, there's a way they sneak it out. There's ways to get snuck, snuck in out of the kitchen. They sneak it out and then they go sell it on the tier. Mm. So I get to chow i'm walking with my plate and there's there's no meat there's no meat in it there's either no cheese there's like i'm lacking what i'm supposed to be getting and oh man i used to get me so angry because i'm hungry and if you don't have somebody sending you in money to buy food and which is way overpriced do you think inflation's bad out here the inflation in there is is like 10 times worse and again like you said where's the money going where is it go who who is making the money in the commissary in there. Who owns the package companies? And the phone call, the phone cards. Global Telling <laughs> does the phone. How much money have they made on the phone calls? Like who's, where is all this money? The package companies owned by the retired officers are able to buy in. Mm. They, they own it. So when I got to prison, we used to get packages sent from your family. They could get a box, put 30 pounds, up to 30 pounds. And Man. now you have to go through like uh, vendors, vendor. approved vendors. Because I, I wanted to be an approved vendor because I was selling um, 
Avon and stuff at the time. I said, you know, you know, the ladies prison, even the men's too, could use some of the skincare stuff and stuff like that. But to be an approved vendor, you have to have a warehouse. Mm -hmm. um, I can't even remember what the dollar amount of merchandise you have to have. And then it's going to be inspected. Your employees have to be screened and, you know, they have all these stipulations for you to be an approved vendor. But yeah, I remember back in the day when people could just put a box together and send it. And they said, well, we can't do that because they're bringing in drugs. I'm like, till this day, they still tell me they're bringing in drugs. I'm all, how do you know that? You know, not, not, not correction officers, but other people. How do you know that? Well, that's how they get the drugs in. I'm like, some of the drugs do come into the visiting. Some of the drugs did come into the package. A very small amount. Guess where the largest amount came from? They're like, who? I said, from the staff that work in there. The phones and all that stuff? That's what it... No, does it really? Yes. <laughs> I know. I knew people that were in there that were doing it. So unless you've been in there and you could tell me that I'm wrong, then you're just telling me what somebody else told you. And I guarantee you, whoever told you has something to do with the people that work in there. They don't want that. That's a myth. That's the myth in there, you know? But I'm like, we'd be on lockdown and all of a sudden there's all these drugs on the yard. I'm like, there's no visiting. There's no packages. So how's it getting in here? <laughs> Where did all these drugs come from? And they said, what well, comes in from the free staff? <laughs> now, what's okay. the free staff? Free staff are non-custody staff. So they have like, People that work in the kitchens, there's, you know, there's people that work like in the, like um, the vocation area to educate teachers, education. They're considered non, you know, uh, they're considered for what we call free staff. They're not custody. Custody are correction officers or peace officers. So free staff could be your nurses. Yes. And that's usually where they, they blame it on them. Oh, it's them. I'm all, well, let's go see the arrest. Let's go see who gets caught with this. Because there's there's a record. And even that is, it, there's there's ways that they hide those numbers. You know, if you come to work and you get caught, it's like, leave, quit, don't come back. There's no record of it. It didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Right? But if I arrest you and I take you in and you're an officer, that's a number against us. So... There's a lot of ways to hide the truth. You know, we can't believe just just because he didn't get caught, just because, uh, you know, you, even though they got caught, I'm saying just because there wasn't a charge, like there, it just the story didn't get told. Yeah, it's just kind of like, okay. <laughs> yeah, and it happens a lot, you know, it happens a lot. Um, you know, there's, like I said, the majority of people in there is, is pretty corrupt. But there, there was some people, you know, I'm, I, I have to be honest, there was some people in there that their humanity came through them. Mm -hmm. Their humanity came through them, you know. There was, there was very, very few officers. There was some administrative people that, you know, they really, I could tell, I, you could tell when somebody's real. So you could tell when somebody cares, you know. Um, there was staff that communicated with me, you know, way outside of the, the, you know, the limitations that they get put on. And uh, it's, uh, 
very, very far and in between. You know, I had officers open my door when I was cooking or uh, painting. I, I was an artist in there uh, or drawing. And they would open my door and talk to me sometimes for 20, 30 minutes, you know, and come in there, hey, what are you doing, you know? And they would communicate with me, you know, and then they, they would tell me things and they would ask me how I'm doing, you know? There was there was people that did do that. There was there was some um, there was some administrative people. Like I said, they they told me, Gilbert, you don't belong here. I I, I looked your history up. You don't belong here. And they would tell me, we're gonna transfer. I'm gonna get you transferred. You're you're gonna go somewhere else. You know, you're gonna go work over here. And they put me on buses and they moved me around. You know, they and they checked on me over the years. They would mm -hmm. call and check. Hey, how's Gilbert? You know, put Gilbert on the three way, or not a three way, but on the speakerphone. And like, hey, you're still working. You're still doing. You're still clean. You're not getting in trouble. No, man, I'm good. I'm doing good. I hope you are enjoying part one of my interview with Gilbert Bale. Make sure to stick around for part two when we get more into Gilbert's support system and how he's been able to transition.